Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Food is a perfect and exact mirror of how I feel about my life. It's a perfect and exact mirror of how I feel about my life. Yeah, tell me more about that. So if I feel like I'm overwhelmed with life and I can't take it in, we tend to get restrictive with our food. Like, oh, I can't control all of the feelings that I have. I can't control the probation officer. I can't control my parents. I'm getting overwhelmed so I can control one thing and I'm going to keep this out. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame and I am your host. Today, we have Victoria Abel. Victoria Abel is a therapist. She's a chef and a certified addiction nutritionist. She began in 1994 with inpatient treatment, being trained as a therapist, working with trauma, family systems, and all types of addiction. During this time, Victoria received her first master's degree in counseling. Being raised in a holistic family, Victoria was reintroduced to naturopathic medicine when her own daughter became ill and a dramatic change in diet changed the trajectory of her daughter's life. Ever since, Victoria has been hooked on the healing power of food. She completed the Master Nutrition Therapist Program through Nutrition Therapy Institute in Colorado and has been able to integrate nutrition therapy into her therapeutic work. She works with clients in a multitude of venues to provide support, encouragement, education, and hands-on skills to help people heal their relationships with food. Victoria and I had so much fun talking about every tangential thing that can come off of nutrition, recovery, trauma, you name it, we got there. We talked a lot about raising children in this environment, this environment being our society today and uh, different types of ways of dealing with food issues, disordered eating. I hope that this is helpful. It was helpful to me to talk to Victoria. Every time I talk to her, I'm just amazed. She's, she's, creating a cookbook with a friend of mine, Vanessa Her, and they are going around traveling the country, talking to different people about their stories and their relationship with food before and after recovery. It's going to be amazing. It comes out in 2022. Victoria Abel also has nutrition classes and cooking classes on the lionrock.life site. I know there's one on Thursday. I highly encourage you to go and check that out, lionrock.life, and you will see nutrition in recovery. So without further ado, I give you my friend, the amazing therapist, chef, and certified addiction nutritionist, Victoria Abel. Episode 125, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Victoria, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley. I'm really excited and honored. So I have a picture. We start every episode with a 
it started as a bad haircut picture, but people are kind of making it their own, you know, thing. So sometimes it's, it's their craziest or whatever, but I have a picture of you. I'm guessing it's from the 1980s. (laughs) Is that accurate? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's some pretty bad hair. So is that, so that's a perm? Yeah, that's a perm. And at that point I was trying to get into modeling and I thought that was, I mean, you know, it looks like an 80s. It doesn't look bad. It looks like an 80s haircut, right? 80s hairstyle. It was 1986. And um, I had a really beautiful friend named Darlene and she wanted to play dress up. And um, so she did. And and the sad part is that in that picture, you can't see the acid wash jeans with the roses all over them. So yeah. Yeah. That is a very and sad part of that picture. We can't see that. I know. I'll certainly share that in private with you. Yes. Yes. I appreciate that. And uh, how old were you in 1986? I was 15 years old. 15 years old. And uh, what was your life like at 15 years old? It was a rich time. I'll just say that without um, any kind of judgment of positive and negative. It was really rich. My parents had gotten divorced uh, a little bit before then. And my mom had just gotten sober. And so I was still pretty deep in some eating disorder behaviors. So modeling wasn't helping at all. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard it. I've heard it doesn't help with eating disorders. Weird. Yeah. And so, you know, getting feedback that I wasn't thin enough, even though, you know, at 5'11", I certainly, you know, whatever, I don't know what my weight was, who cares, but you know, it was, it it sent a great message to me at that point. And so one of the things that helped me through the next few years dealing with my eating disorder was my mom's sobriety. And so we can certainly talk about that a lot in this podcast, but, um, so 15 was rough and it was before I found myself and it was before I found my recovery. And, uh, so I, it's and it was after you st- found perm. Right. Oh boy. Oh, it was right. it was, I think it was a home perm that we did oh, in the kitchen. Home? Oh, I didn't know you could yeah. do that. Yeah. See, I have really curly hair. So the idea of a perm is ludicrous to me, but I, I, I hear it was all the rage. You, so you're 15. Mom is newly sober. So that means 15 years or 14 years prior, mom was not sober. And it also means the mom gets sober and there's a divorce in that time frame. So I'm assuming that sober or drinking had something to do with divorce. What happened with mom and her drinking? Or did did you know that that was coming, that mom had a problem? I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. It was so normalized. And my parents were, I was raised part-time in a van and in a boat. We always had a house, but, you know, we traveled all the time and we really had this fun, exciting life in this little fishing village called Noank in Connecticut. And we always had parties and there was people over and it wasn't sort of that stereotypical drinking household. Uh, There wasn't violence. There wasn't any fear. Uh, It was just kind of wild and fun. And so when my parents got divorced, her story, which she's given me permission, thank you, mom, to share, her drinking got more so. Oh, okay. So the divorce was the I, divorce. When I was 12 or 13. Okay. And okay. and then her drinking got more severe. It was morning drinking and, and middle of the night needing to drink. And so when she got sober, my sister and I were like, we don't really understand this because we weren't the kids going, mommy, please stop drinking. 
Right. You know, we were just like, oh, mommy pours from the gallon. But that wasn't until the divorce or... Well, there was a lot of drinking before you had yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it wasn't like, you know, the morning drinking and all that. It was definitely like, you know, alcohol with dinner and parties on the weekends and, and things like that. And my parents were very well loved and we had a beautiful community. And then everything just went to hell, you know? And so that was about the time that I discovered binging. And that was the time that I discovered purging and restricting and going through this pattern that so, so many people, uh, especially at that age, fall into. And it was my coping. So just for people who might, you know, I, I've done your introduction and read your bio, but you, you, your background is as a nutritionist and particularly as it relates to addiction. Yes. And what is the, when you are meeting with people who are kind of new to the eating disorder land, it's a new area of Disneyland, if you didn't know, um, just kidding. So the or maybe not. There's like a good joke in there too. There's a there's some there's good a, throwing up that mm-hmm. does happen. At yeah, 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 yeah definitely for sure. sure. There's also some good binging there. Princesses. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also the princesses. Oh, the princesses. Yes. No, they don't have a problem. No, no. Uh, how would you describe what binging to someone who is unfamiliar? Thanks for asking that question. So binging is different than overeating because we do also have overeating as a disordered eating pattern. But binging, in my experience, personally and professionally, it's almost this uncontrollable, short, often short period of time of taking in a tremendous amount of food. It feels completely out of control, most often done very privately. And, you know, it the purging part happens differently as well. So trigger warning folks, but, you know, sometimes that means self-induced vomiting. Sometimes that means the purging part might be compulsive exercise, or it might be in the DSM, it's the, you know, compensatory method or basically trying to make up for some of that binging might be then restricting the next day or might be then laxative use or things like that. So for me, it was just good old, purging, throwing up in the bathroom. Um, And I thought I was the only one. And I know so many people who say they're like, oh, like, you know, with the self-injurious behavior like that, they're like, oh, I discovered this thing all to myself. It cracks me up. It cracks. I, cause, cause I identify as a compulsive overeater. And so been lots of OA meetings, lots of different types of stuff. And, and when people are like, yeah, I thought it was the only bulimic on the planet. I'm like, what? <laughs> Where, you know, like, I get it. I get, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that you're alone in the world and I, like, you know, but people genuinely have this thought that they're the only person over the toilet. And, and I'm like, it's so funny, our delusions, right? It's so, we can know that this is a thing out in the world, but we, in our heads, this is, we're the only person this is happening to. And and so many people struggle with with disordered eating, eating disorders, whichever you know way you want to call it. And I think the the thing for me was that I had this pride. I had a deep feeling of pride of I can do this thing. I can eat all the cookie dough. I can eat all the things in the pantry, throw up, and it boom, it's all gone. You know, there's, there's nothing there and I know totally magic. And I'm very, very, very grateful that my mom was sober during this time for the majority of when it was, it was significant because the 
repercussions physically, emotionally, and mentally. I was able to really get clean. I just celebrated 32 years. Congratulations. Thanks. So I was able to do that at about 18 years old and it wasn't through traditional modalities, but it's really interesting. It was through breath work and it was through a lot of beautiful, you know, spiritual therapy. And now it's so funny because at the time people are like, what are you doing? Yeah, Why yeah, yeah. are you laying on a floor hyperventilating yeah. and your fingers are all cramped yeah. up? And oh, what yeah, the heck? Yeah. And now it's like the thing in California. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like I was 32 years early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's definitely the thing I've done a lot of breath. One of my best friends is, is now does breath work. Shout out to uh, breathe with Joanne, Joanne Kenyon. And, uh, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And I, I took my husband to go do this and he was like, so let me get this straight. We're going to pay someone to show us how to breathe. And I was like, yes, just, he's like, you can seriously, he said to me, you seriously can find any way to spend money. Like, honestly, (laughs) but he loved, I mean, it was a, you know, as you know, it's an incredible it's an incredible experience. So that's really cool that you, that you used that. Did you, it sounds like your mom figured out what was going on or did you confide in her? Really? I didn't talk to her much about that specifically. I talked to her about understanding things like, you know, coming into my own sexuality, understanding that having some grace and acceptance. I also went to, um, I came out West, (laughs) you know, I'm originally from Connecticut. Love it, love it, love it. But I came to Prescott, Arizona. And if anybody out there in the recovery community, like super shout out to Prescott, Arizona, Mm -hmm. it's this weird, beautiful hub of recovery. And it really wasn't at the time, you know, it was, there was two treatment centers. What year did you go out? 89, 90, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, there was two, you know, and one of them was Duck House and it's not there anymore, but I love Duck House. And there were these two amazing women who ran it and they just, they, they kind of, that and Prescott House sort of brought in a tremendous amount of community of recovery community, but it wasn't known for that then. And then boom, you know, Prescott became this hub and people ask me, I've lived here 32 years and people ask me all the time, like, why Prescott? What, what is it? And I, I believe on a spiritual level, there's a great deal of healing energy here to sound mm-hmm. kind of groovy, but remember I was raised in a van. Um, <laughs> so kind of comes by naturally, but it also is a transitional zone from the mm-hmm. desert to, you know, the high, you know, to the mountains. And there's just something really healing here. And so I came here to heal and I didn't know it. I came here to go to Prescott college. I had, you know, whatever. But I I found Linda Chastain and she led me through breath work. And still 32 years later, some of my best friends are from that group. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. The Prescott, I lived in Prescott for two years and uh, it's a wild place. It's had a lot of very pivotal experiences in there and, and, you know, got sober there. So, and have run into people that I got sober there who've, I don't know how I possibly could have run into them out in the rest of the world, but we got sober in Prescott. They're from another place and then run into each other. And it's, it's, it's an incredible community. You 
spend a lot of time helping people who are in recovery with nutrition. And this is a huge, you know, it's a huge piece for me because my recovery has transitioned from being really about the drugs and alcohol to being managing this eating disorder that was always there that I was able to manage in early sobriety and kind of hide and over, you know, make it, I could exercise my way out of, you know, a binge or I could, Mm -hmm. and, and then the longer I'm sober and the more, the bigger my life gets, the less I'm able to do those things that I used to do. And the more I have to rely on positive, (laughs) healthy coping skills. And so I see this a lot with, with particularly with women, but generally with people who've been sober and had some sort of issues and they come out and they don't come out right away always. How are you helping people and how do you how do you describe this unhealthy relationship with food that is particular to this community? What do you see? I think that you're part of a a really large group of, and it's typically about three years after people get clean and sober. And that's, that's an average number. Sometimes it pops up within, you know, I call it the treatment 20. Like most people gain 20 pounds in treatment and they're like, I thought not drinking a handle of vodka, I would lose the weight, you know? And so sometimes it comes earlier and people relapse over that, right? The Mm -hmm. relapse rates with people with underlying disordered eating, they're like, well, I'll just have a little bit of the math to lose the weight. Totally. Obviously. Which is really effective. Yeah. Um, you know, it's called and 10 days so... of math. It's a great book. <laughs> Just, you know, a little, little clean out session and there you go. Yeah. Detox with some methamphetamine. Um, so I'm, so what I see is there's two major groups of people. One that had an underlying disordered eating because most of us discovered food as our first drug of choice. And because we're given, especially in the American culture, Oh, Ashley, you did a great job on your, you know, on your report card, here's ice cream or, you know, you're bad. So you don't get dessert. And all of a sudden these foods become so important and they have such a power over you. If I'm good, if I'm bad, I get it. I don't, I, you know, a soothing, oh, you had a heartbreak. Here's, you know, your therapist, Ben and Jerry. And so that, so we're using food as our first coping strategy. And then it's like, Oh, look at that. Um, you know, heroin is much more effective mm-hmm. totally. you know, than totally. the chocolate like, wow. cake. What this was is... I doing all that time? And then, and then and then we then when we get sober, boom, there's the eating disorder, the old eating disorder. So that's one population of people. And then there's another population of people that once I don't have this numbing agent, um, I'm going to do a couple things. And I notice this a lot. It's not just with males, but I see a lot of people, they get into treatment and immediately they go, I got to get sobriety. I got to get so built. I got to get so big. And I'm all I'm focused on is my protein powder and my pre-workout. And, you know, and then all of a sudden there's this new blossoming addiction and body dysmorphia. And, you know, and I try and tell those folks, you know, we're that compulsive mind is still wildly active, you know, within that first, especially 90 days, but really within the first three years of substance recovery, that compulsive mind is still like, how can I get my fix? How can I get my fix? Maybe I'll, you know, start 
doing, you know, investing, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, whatever I can do to try and get out of myself. And so what I see is that food, and this is a big part of this conversation to me, that food is a perfect and exact mirror of how I feel about my life. It's a perfect and exact mirror of how I feel about my life. Yeah. Tell me more about that. So if I feel like I'm overwhelmed with life and I can't take it in, we tend to get restrictive with our food. Like, oh, I can't control all of the feelings that I have. I can't control the probation officer. I can't control my parents. I'm getting overwhelmed so I can control one thing and I'm going to keep this out. I'm going to keep out these foods. Or if there's a deep loneliness or a deep trauma that we want to keep shoved down, That's often we're trying to take in more life. We need more. I feel empty. I need more life. And so I teach my clients that instead of seeing this as a disease that you need to have abstinence from, because it's food, this isn't an abstinence model, to see it as that when I have a craving for sweet, how can I say to myself, what sweetness am I needing right now? What is the sweetness? Is that sweetness having a friend come and brush my hair? Is that sweetness, you know, being in relationship with the natural world? What is the sweetness that you're looking for? So can I ask you a question about that? Because there is a component that's of a, and and, and I do, you have some um, helpful tips for this. Mm -hmm. There is a component of there is yeast in your system, in your gut, and your body is sending chemical messages to your brain, creating a craving for sugar. And I I often, I think that there is something to be said for a chemical reaction. Like there's the, there's the trauma and there's the, there's the overeating and the, but there is, I find I have, you know, removed sugar from my diet and I have fewer sugar cravings and it's easier to say, what's the sweetness I need, you know? And when I have sugar in my diet and I'm craving sweet, it's nearly impossible to say what's this. So how do you differentiate those things? Well, that's body, mind, and spirit. And the body, and that's why I love that I have a master's in psychology and I also have a master's in nutrition. So I have the psychological part and I also have the scientific part. And I think it's both and that we have to do things to help heal the body. So your brain isn't getting those chronic messages of just like, feed me sugar, feed me sugar. So what I do is twofold. One is that I'm looking at how do we physiologically, like a simple thing, like eating a baked potato before you go to bed with the skin on decreases your sugar cravings by over. 50% the next day. Simple things like that's a little hack, right? And then there's supplements like a whole whole baked potato. No, you don't. Okay. (laughs) You're like, "Um, you got to help me out here. (laughs) I can just see it. Like like half you're eating an entire baked potato before bed every night. I'm like, yes, obviously what I do. We're not talking like a Texas roadhouse size baked potato. We're talking like what I do is I recommend a couple fingerling potatoes because there's a lot more of the um, skin you know, or half of half a potato. And people are like, you're the coolest nutritionist around. And then four days in, they're like, oh my God, I can't eat another potato. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so, so doing little tricks physiologically. Yeah. And then the challenge is if we begin to remove those cravings, the addict mind will often be like, 
let me replace that, right? And so doing both and, and having the physiological attended to, you know, there's a supplement called Gymnema. And again, I'm not telling anyone to go out and get these. I'm saying that these are things to talk to your medical provider for about, but Gymnema is a fabulous, fabulous supplement that balances blood sugar. And done with How do you spell that? G Y. I have to spell it. G G Y M N E M A. Gymnema. And oh, gymnema, oh, phonetically. <laughs> exactly like it sounds. Yeah, exactly like it sounds. <laughs> um, I'm one of those I can't spell out loud. I don't know. And so the gymnema or the Saccharomyces boulardii to eat up the yeast in the gut. So, you know, it's both and, and I feel like if we are sending folks out into the world of recovery, and that's why I love doing the Lion Rock Nutrition for Recovery on Thursday nights, because in that, I want to arm people with both, you know, your amazing team of, you know, counselors and coaches and, you know, groups and your facilitators are amazing, you know, so when you have that, but you also have ways to decrease anxiety naturally through your diet, well, bing bong, you've got both sides of that coin. And I think it's been missing in the recovery field since the beginning, to be honest. Totally agree with you. And, and, you know, I also don't know that I would have been open to, you know, if you, I was like, okay, I have to quit smoking. I have to stop sleeping around. I have to, you know, not do drugs and alcohol. I have to, like, I think I would have really just said, you guys are the fun police and (laughs) I will be leaving right now. Oh, I get that pushback all the time. I had one guy who came into my group and he had a big bag of Flamin' Hot Cheetos that he had gone and pushed the nacho cheese at the convenience store and then had the 64 ounce Coke. And he came in to my nutrition group and he was like, with that? So, yeah. And he was like, so Victoria, you know, look at me. And I was like, right on brother. And he was shocked, but I said, you do you. But the thing is, I want you to hold this information somewhere near you. Right. And you may not be ready for that because it is, you're like, oh my God, you're taking away, you know, fentanyl. And now I can't have gluten. Like what (laughs) woman are you? You know, you evil, evil. I've been called some names, but the the reality is, is that, you know, and I was talking to your wonderful producer before this about how cool it is that if you do, even if just starts with breakfast and the rest of the day is trash, or even if you start drinking your water total, you're going to feel better within a day or two days. You're not waiting for that magic aha moment when you're like, oh, sobriety's awesome. Or you're not waiting for the three, four weeks for your medication to kick in. We're talking like 24 hours. We're talking sometimes 10 minutes if you just are dehydrated and you, you know, drink some water. This is sort of immediacy. And when I teach cooking classes, whether it be through Lion Rock or other treatment centers in person, and they eat a delicious meal and they're like, wait a minute, this took 10 minutes. It's really good for my recovery. And it tastes like this score. I can do that. And I want to empower people instead of saying this has to come from outside of you, which a lot does in new recovery. This is something actually you can do And that in that moment of feeling powerless to be able to say, well, I can do one thing. And that might mean drinking water 
Yeah. And, and it's amazing how, it's amazing how difficult it is to get the amount of water. It's embarrassing to say, but you just, I have my water bottle with me all the time. And I, you know, I really have to make an effort to get the amount of water that, that you're, you're supposed to get. So it's, it's, it seems like a easy enough thing to do, but you know, it has to be conscious. You have to make conscious decisions to make those changes. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about getting sober and and being having the addict the compulsive mind is that you know people used to say if you took you know in treatment if you took your the focus and the drive and the ambition that you know and the and basically compulsion that you had towards getting the substance and you put that towards anything positive in your life you would you know have everything whatever and what i find interesting is that when we do that, right? When we decide to take all of that and we decide to get swolebriety, right? We're like, okay, I'm going to take everything I gave to, you know, Steve on the corner with fentanyl. And I'm going to put all that ambition into hunting him down into find, making sure I have, you know, GNC powder and I'm at the gym every day. There is also judgment about the things we compulsively do that are on the more positive side in sobriety. And I've seen it a lot with different things. Oh, you're doing that alcoholically. You're doing this alcohol. You're, you know, and I've actually seen it a lot with, you know, there are different types, but I've seen a lot with friends who've become bodybuilders in sobriety where they, where the community is really torn about how to support or not what they're doing because it seem because it's obsessive but at the same time we are obsessive and so we are going to put that somewhere how how are you talking to people about this like if i want to be an iron man if i want to be a bodybuilder if i want to you know be an athlete i'm told that I'm going to be obsessive about it. How do you, where's that line that you, not, not for everyone, but, but that you Victoria use to talk to your clients about how to understand where there's harm and where it's like, this is part of my personality and I'm putting it to work. I love that question because I do actually train athletes in recovery. I am not anti that at all, but what I see in the question is, If I said to you, and I use myself all the time, if I said to you, I'm going to get so freaking small, I'm going to get so freaking tiny, I'm going to take diuretics, I'm going to take laxatives, and I'm only going to eat this many calories. And if I eat any extra calories, I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z. What would you say to me? And they would be like, "Uh, alert, alert, right? And I said, so if I said to you, from as being a professional and doing this for a very long time, if I said to you that pre-workout feels a lot like meth and that's your drug of choice and we're not going to use it and you use it anyway, because your goal of the bodybuilding and it, it, it might just whatever be it is, professional yeah. in bodybuilding, but it might be whatever. If your goal is actually superseded from advice and it makes you feel similarly, what I've seen is a cascade very often of relapse. Because then it's, you know, the pre-workout's not enough. Then we might do a just a cycle, you know, of some steroids and going into that realm. So what I say is just like with people who are wanting to consider moderation management or something like that, stay in touch with your providers. Stay in touch with your sponsor. Keep the advice of the people you trust nearby. And if you want to do this with me, let's do it. But we're going to do it more with Whole Foods. 
let's find some protein powders that actually aren't inflammatory because inflammation causes depression. You know, let's not use a substance that's going to remind you of how you felt on meth and let's do it. Absolutely. You want to have this goal of being a bikini model. You want to have this goal of, you know, I have a, a female professional wrestler right now that I work with and she is rocking it. She is rocking it. And you think wrestling, you got your weight on your sleeve, you know, but she's staying in contact with her providers. And I think that's a huge difference. So when you, when you, in your own story with the binging, the purging, what was the thing, what was the mental state that you reached that caused you to be willing to change and seek out, you know, and whether that was offered to you or you found it, these alternative ways of living? Because I left the East Coast and I found my tribe here. I found my people. Prescott College, if the listeners are unaware, is kind of a hippie institution, really focused on the natural world, really focused on justice. And it's an amazing, I was a professor there for 17 years too. And I found these people and I didn't have to be the perfect Connecticut girl. Mm. I didn't have to fit into the box of what it means to be female, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual, going to be an accountant, going to get, you know, going to college. My, some of my friends at my high school were like, I'm going to college to get my MRS degree. You know, they were going to get married. And I was like, what? I feel so different. And so when I came out here and really discovered a lot about my own spirituality, about myself, I started to just automatically drift away from the behaviors because I wasn't needing to throw up my truth because I was able to live my truth. I didn't need to shove down that I'm an empath. I didn't know the freaking words at the time. But I was like, why am I feeling all the things, right? And then all of a sudden, a bunch of these weird other people who were just like me were around me all the time. And so when I was introduced to breathwork, a friend of mine, you know, when you just get the yes, Mm -hmm. you know, in your gut and you're Mm -hmm. just, you know, the gut never, the gut never lies. It never lies. Your head is a big stupid liar, but, um, you know, it really is. I call it a fat puppy because your brain is mostly made up of fat and it's like a puppy. It just eats things and poops where it's not supposed to, but the gut is, That's so, definitely my brain. <laughs> but the gut is always right. And uh, my friend said, Hey, I'm doing this cool thing. And I just had a yes. And I went to, to my first session and I hated it with a deep, fiery, resistant passion. So I did it for two years Mm -hmm. because I knew it was the right thing for me. And so when I say I'm clean 32 years, I don't know what the hell that means. And you probably don't either with food because what does that mean? I mean, you, you have a day that is like, this is my last drink. We have a day that this is the last time I, whatever, but with food, it's really tricky because I can tell you 32 years ago, I was, I was, you know, in, in a obsessed place and then I'm, I wasn't, but that doesn't mean in 32 years, I haven't misused food. I just haven't done it. Like it hasn't ruled my life. What about bottom line behaviors? 
And for people who don't know, a bottom line behavior, I believe, came out of sex addiction, um, SLAA. And you basically, instead, with things that you're going to participate in, because it's not like eating or, or sex that are that are part of the human experience in a, in a valuable way, you create a behavior, a bottom line behavior. This is the behavior I will not cross, right? So maybe it's sleeping with someone outside of your committed relationship, or it's sugar eating anything with sugar in the first three ingredients or it's, you know, whatever the people have weighing and measuring. They have all these different, you know, um, I know a lot of people who is like, I'll anything but throwing up. That is, if I throw up, that's, you know, that's my abstinence. And everything before that, you know, is gray, but that's their bottom line. How, how do you feel about bottom line behaviors in eating recovery? It's interesting that you liken it to sex addiction recovery because I uh, I was a certified sex addiction therapist because it, it was very helpful for me because process addictions um, and Patrick Carnes was really grateful to work. I worked with him for a long time. Oh, and, wow. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I worked at the Meadows. It was amazing. And so to be able to see the correlation in the process addictions, because honestly, when you pull away sex, sexual compulsivity, oh, dog, there's some food often. Or you pull away food. Food and there's the sexual compulsivity. So those two, because when you look neurochemically at that, the receptors in the nucleus accumbens and the sugar receptors uh, to release dopamine, very similar pathway. So just kind of keeping that kind of science on on board with our conversation, but going back to that bottom line, what is that? You know, I always say to the people I'm working with that instead of a destination with food recovery, I'm much more of a, like, we're on this train together. And I work from a feminist model in the sense of I'm working with you. I am your partner. I'm not an authority. I am working as your co-creator of what you want your recovery life to look like. And some people need that bottom line and we create that together. So it's not me saying this. And then it can change your... Totally. And people will be like, oh, Victoria, I ate chocolate cake this weekend. And my question always is, was it good? And they, they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, okay, was it at a birthday party and you had a small piece of cake? Or was it at two in the morning in the closet by yourself eating the whole dang cake? What was your emotion? What was the need? What was going on for you? And if eating sugar and cake is a bottom line, that's a different story, right? Because okay, then okay. you have crossed that line for yourself. Right, right, right. Okay. But when people get um, into that fear then with food, that's that's another dangerous part. But having that bottom line, and for many people, it's purging, or for many people, it's, you know, going this many hours without eating, or, you know, for my folks who are restricting and or using a supplement for weight loss. That's a really big one. But it also was using a supplement for mass gaining for some of my folks. Um, so it isn't just about that, you know, how we've projected the feminine onto eating disorders, because about a third to almost a half of my clients are men. And so being able to almost see. Half, wow. And so, you know, and there's a lot of resistance there. And yeah. I understand that a lot of resistance. And that's sad because there's a tremendous amount of men out there listening who are suffering with this. And I want you to know that you are not alone and that that this is a population I'd really like to work with more. Um, and I that's part of my plans for the future of my career is working more with men. My, my journey started with food. Then it was actually 
academics, like just extremely, you know, to the point where I was dysregulated when I would get anything below a hundred, things like that. And then boys and then drugs and, and uh, drugs and alcohol were always involved in that. But then it was like, oh, drugs are way easier to manage than the rest of these, you know, food and, and dudes and whatever, like this is, this is doable. And then it went back to sex and love and I went to the meadow. So I, I went to, I was in treatment for drugs and alcohol, many treatments for drugs and alcohol as a teenager. I was at Gatehouse for a year and I, I could not stay out of involvement with the opposite sex. Could like, like I wanted to because I was tired of getting in trouble and it was such a, and not even like sex space, just like in my head. And in, and I also came from a, a domestic abusive relationship that I kept going back to. And so I went to the meadows for um, sex and love addiction. And my, my husband always jokes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's love addiction. Let's be real. But, you know, it was really interesting to me how, how, how that plays into like all of my stuff is really the same stuff. And it's the same. There's this piece of me that is always, it's like a hunter. It's always looking for something that there's a scope and it's always looking for something to put into the scope, right? It's like a hammer looking for a nail and it might be a relationship. It might be a job. It might be food. It might be whatever it is. And then there's a, a laser focus on that thing to the point of all the other things falling away or neglect or whatever it is. And it, it was fascinating at the Meadows, you know, to listen and and learn about how if i don't continue to treat ashley <laughs> like i thought i was treating alcoholism i'm not treating alcoholism i'm treating ashley i'm 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 treating ashley and all her all her you know advantages and disadvantages all, all the it, it is a whole person and you can't just look at it from an alcohol perspective or a, or or a meth perspective it has to be this this greater thing because it turns into other things because it's not about the substance. And I think food is just this, we have it to stay, we need it for sustenance. Like you can stay out of relationships. You can stay, you know, there you can, and you'll die without food. So it's the, it's the thing that we abuse. And I, I really, as I've worked on this, one of the things I struggle with both as a parent and a person in recovery, and frankly, just as a, an American, is that I feel like the system is set up to make me fail. And I feel encouraged to fail on a regular basis. And, you know, not just like, oh, woe is me, it's so hard, but literally tricked into thinking something is good for you or, 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 or something is created to create the craving I'm trying to fight, or it's a birthday party, you should have cake, you know, or things like this. And, you know, it wasn't that hard with drugs and alcohol the same way. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, and I got sober at 19. I wonder what are your thoughts around how it is to live in a society that really wants you to engage in, like really wants you to engage in unhealthy eating? It's why I'm always going to have a job. I will always, I will always have a wait list because the thing is, even in the recovery community, it's like, well, at least it's not 
fill in the blank. At least it's not heroin. You're just eating cake, you know, and you walk into a 12 step meeting and what's in there, energy drinks, coffee, cake, and, you know, and, and, but it's that old mentality, which still has beauty. But part of that is like, well, if you need sugar to get off the alcohol, that's fine. And what we know scientifically is that that's not true. Okay. Tell me more about that. Well, how many people have brought up the big book to me and been like, see, it says in here, go ahead and have some chocolate because um, it helps with alcohol cravings. And it's like, you know, the the biochemistry of that is actually completely wrong because if you get sugar, I don't think I answered your question, Ashley. I'm sorry, but no, I'll go no, back to it. No, um, answer answer okay. whatever question you want to answer. So, you know, if, if your brain is craving sugar and every time, especially in new recovery, especially with alcohol and with opiates, when you, when you're craving that sugar and you're like, all right, I'll give it to you. All right. I'll give it to you. And then you're out of a constricted environment of a treatment center. And then you're like, your brain goes, I'd like some more of that heroin, please. All right. All right. That sugar feeds on itself. The, the crappy food feeds on itself. And, you know, if you say to someone, I don't eat gluten or I don't eat dairy, it's like there's the eye roll that we get sometimes of like, oh, you're one of those, or, oh, I don't eat sugar because, you know, we're most of those foods. And I can go into that if you want, that sugar releases dopamine every single time. And most people, most folks who identify as addicts have a dopamine receptor deficiency. And so we're looking for dopamine all the time. Um, Why do we have a dopamine receptor deficiency? Well, there's most people have dopamine A or B receptor. This is information out of MIT. And so dopamine A receptor people, I'm one of those, thank God. And honestly, if asparagus is on sale, like doing a dance in the Safeway. I'm so excited, you know? And, you know, and then dopamine B receptor deficiency is not just not having enough dopamine itself, but even if you have dopamine, you're not able to experience it. So it can't absorb it. Right. And you, so you're not feeling the, whoa, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Yay. That's me. Um, and so if you and I got bikes on our birthday yeah, and I'm like an A and I'm like, oh, ding, ding, ding with my bike and the bell and the right. thing and the basket. The receptor A like, is going off. Yeah. I'm, I'm an A person. So I have okay. all my receptors and I'm like, whoa, I'm so excited. Whereas a B receptor person is going to go, eh, it's a bike. But if I rode that off the garage roof now, whoa, now I'm going to have this experience. And the ways that we get dopamine are obviously stimulants. We also get dopamine from sex. We also get dopamine from new love obsessive relationships and we get dopamine from sugar. So many of these folks, they're thinking, oh my God, I'm the mess up in the family. I'm the addict. I've destroyed my family. It's like, well, if I can look at your dopamine receptors, <laughs> of course you did. Of course you wanted that because, you know, the, the, the B receptor people are the ones with deficiency. The teacher says, we're going to go to the dinosaur museum. And all the A's are like, you know, and all the B's are like, Ugh, they're dead. Who cares? Is there a place where the, 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 is there a person where like they're excited for a little bit and then it's done? Like yeah, there's absolutely. some excitement, but it just sure. isn't sustaining. Yes, absolutely. It's never enough. And so that's what the kind of the theme song of addiction, there's never enough. Well, if there's never enough dopamine, I'm going to find it somewhere and I'm going to find that intensity. So you know, the three ways that we can get actually those dopamine receptors restored, um, which is pretty darn exciting. One is nutrition. That is why I'm here. Um, (laughs) 
plug here for Victoria Abel. Um, <laughs> plug, no, but- <laughs> plug here for vegetables. Wait, so, okay, you tell me the three and then I have a question about that. Okay, so one is actually trying new foods. So you actually get dopamine from trying a new food. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you have this new dish and you're like, holy bagonkers, that is the best thing. And you're high as a kite, so exciting. And then you go back a week later and you have it again. It's just not as good. It's because you're not getting that reward. You're not getting a dopamine reward by having a new food. So food is a way to do it and also different supplements, but that's beyond this podcast time. The second one is exercise. So exercise and especially some risk. So rock climbing, huge, really important, you know, whitewater rafting, uh, fencing, you know, doing things that have like CrossFit is a little, you know, I mean, it's very powerful. Be careful every CrossFitter, but that's very intensive. There's actually a treatment center here in Prescott. That's a CrossFit focused treatment center. So they do CrossFit, all their dopamine is up. Boom. They go right into therapy group. And I know. And the third is meditation. So mindfulness meditation actually increases dopamine receptor sites. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change. And I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience, join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. Okay, so my first question is, if we could see the brain of a five-year-old and see that their dope, their dope, their B dopamine receptors were lacking, which I believe my parents did that test on me when I was a kid. I don't know why. I, I don't remember, but my mom, they, my mom had a test done at a with a chiropractor. They basically showed that like. I don't have enough of, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were like, you're screwed. (laughs) Didn't say that, but I mean, that's what I Have a good day at kindergarten, dear. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah, yeah. She's that one's one's screwed. But so if you take a snapshot of, of, and you see in a kid, their dopamine receptor B is lacking. Are they, how is it possible for them not 
to be someone who gets addicted or or some sort of maladaptive behavior in seeking dopamine because literally that is a chem a neurochemical that they are lacking and that they need and that their brain is set up to seek how how could they be anything other than that we can and that's what's super duper amazing exciting right so having them in things like you know karate and i think your kiddos are doing some martial arts jiu-jitsu. stuff yeah. or jujitsu having them have really exciting experiences that don't blow out their dopamine natural experiences of you know and you do you know you're playing you go out in the wilderness you go to the beach you do the things so they have these natural dopamine experiences so they're not needing as much to go out and then get completely flooded, depleted, flooded, depleted, and that cycle continues. So the other thing is exactly what you're doing. You know, you're really conscious about the their birth process and making sure that that gut microbiome was absolutely as fertile as possible. The easy thing we can do for that to reduce anxiety, which feeds that craving for dopamine, um, is really good quality probiotics and making sure that they're eating whole foods. It doesn't mean that foods like some sugars need to be completely kept out, but they also don't get to be special. And so, you know, keeping that relationship with food being, because, you know, so many of my clients will say, oh, I struggle with fill in the blank food. And they'd say, yeah, I would watch my mom say, I can't have this, you know, because I'll gain weight or whatever. But then she fed it to me and it was very confusing, you know, to have the yes and the no's and, and all that kind of stuff, unless it's an eating disorder, unless it's an allergy. But, you know, really allowing food to be something nourishing, allowing it to be enjoyable and allowing some flow as much as possible with that. So food is really important, but there's also supplements. And that would be something to talk to a naturopath or someone like me about how do we help them regulate their neurotransmitters, because if they do have that dopamine deficiency and or deficiency in receptor sites, you know, there's a lot of ways, just like, you know, I wear glasses and if I don't, I don't even know who you are on the screen. (laughs) I really would have no idea. I think I would be looking towards the screen. Not it's possible. I wouldn't. So I put these on because my eyes have a deficiency and there are supplements and medications that help with some of that. And also kids, especially at your kid's age, are so open to meditation of being allowing kids. Um, and we all could learn how to meditate better. 30 years meditating daily, and I still really, really challenged. Um, but you know, how do we teach our kids how to be silent so they aren't always craving the intense experience? Yeah. So what I hear you saying, which is something I think about just because of my own circumstances, that we have tools to not only see who the kids that are really high risk, but to also offer them early intervention before they start seeking out maladaptive behaviors or or substances. And that it is not being it is not common practice to t- 
test or screen or do those things. And that what we're doing as an industry is waiting until it's so bad that mom and dad call and say, my kid is doing this and they need an intervention. And do you have a mortgage amount of money to put them in treatment for six months and not go to college? And then, you know, whatever, like that's what, that's what, so our industry says, let's wait until it's really bad. Right. Yes. And the, the, the real challenge that, that, oh yeah, I have so many feelings about that. I'm shaking right now because so many parents don't know. And we have such a punitive system in our schools and often in our homes of if you're the hyper one, let's see if we can get you on medication or let's see, you know, oh, all he'll eat is, you know, Skittles and pancakes, you know, okay. You know, instead of understanding that this is a call, this is a way that a kiddo is saying, help me, you know, help me now, help me do this. And to be able to have that experience to say, wow, my kid is really hyper. What if I make sure that there's outdoor play wild time? What if I, you know, and a lot of parents don't have time, they don't have money or they're not educated because what we're told is that this child is wrong and that they should be in detention, that they should be medicated. That And, you know, sometimes those need to happen. No judgment there. But to be, how do we step in to say, I'm seeing some of my own patterns you know, as a, as an addict in recovery and, or I'm seeing my child is struggling. And what I see, including with my own child, 13, 14, 15 years old in our culture right now, kind of getting back to how we're being set up to fail or we're being set up to feel poorly, you know, 13, 14, 15 is when particularly girls are taught like, don't like Glennon Doyle. If you haven't read Untamed, everybody needs to read it my hero in so many ways. Um, but <laughs> bulimic, I mean, like she's just amazing. Yeah, she's but 13, amazing. 13, 14, 15 is when we learn to shut down our wild. We learn to, to, to put it into a box boys too, uh, or non-gender conforming, you know, people, we are put into these boxes. And then if you're transgender or if you're gender fluid, or, you know, if you don't fit into the boxes that, you know, I, was blessed to leave an area that needed me to be in a particular box. And if we aren't, because, you know, I'm not blaming social media because good gracious, we, you know, Lion Rock wouldn't, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like the presence with social media. Yeah. It's wonderful. You can also do with social media. What I find is you can curate, right? So I mean, my, I was, I was talking to someone um, who was going on and on about the commercialization of 9-11 and how this, the the commoditization of 9-11 and how, you know, we've made it into this thing and and it's so fake and blah, blah, blah. And we were talking about our feeds on 9-11, like what they, what they looked like. And mine was, you know, my family's from New England and my dad worked in the World Trade Center. My feed was flooded with like heartfelt, heroic, loving not at all, you know, and his was filled with, you know, just bullshit. And I, we were, I I was saying like, think about it. Like you, on this day, he was describing his experience through the eyes of engaging with social media. My experience was totally different. So in, you know, we're, it's, you know, we, we almost invite in sometimes things that are, you know, toxic, but we can, 
social media is often what we add to it, what we create, what we, the algorithms we engage with. And that is a really interesting piece. Like, can you change how much more positive could social media be the same amount of time on it, the same behavior, if it was all, you know, Glennon Doyle, right. Or whatever. Like if it was all like, imagine, you know, we, we say like 13, 14, they're looking at social media and it's all this comparison, but what if it were meditation ideas and what, like, it's what, it's how it's curated that really is the, it's the content that is decided for us that makes it the the difference between the positive and the negative. When my daughter was struggling, 13, 14, I I kept her home. Uh, This is just my choice. What I did with my daughter, um, there was a lot of holding. There was a lot of sleeping. There was not a lot of school. There was just presence. And what happened on social media for my daughter, because we had a we had a significant, significant trauma in our lives at that time, is that her social media and the people that she met from around the world flooded her 24-7 with love. See? Every day. Yeah, right. She had, I mean, uh, and Dan and Phil, whoever I... Yes, I've met them because I had to go and meet them on their YouTubers, um, which is super cool. But side note, but um, so she, Dan and Phil's positive message. She said that there were times that she might not have been here if it wasn't from that. Right, right. So and so there's how so you much positive. Absolutely. And I feel like with this pressure to look a certain way, act a certain way, eat a certain thing, do you know, and, and, and all of this pressure, I'm seeing a collapse in this generation. And we're in in this age range of 13 to 15. And when I ask, and you probably experience the same thing in your work, when did you start using drugs? When did you start using alcohol? When did you start cutting? When did you start puking? You know, 13 to 15 is this super juicy, painful Age. And when you look at family systems, the child is typically the one who is going to exhibit the symptoms of the disease of the family. And if we can take that, boy, we're going all over the place, girlfriend. But you know, it, but when you take a look at the family system, sure, it might be the microcosm of your immediate family, but I feel like in our culture, we're in pain. We're in horrible conflict and pain as an American culture. Yes. And I feel like part of this 13 to 15 vulnerable generation shout out to any middle school teacher right now we love you so much all teachers right now and god love the school counselors so you know we have this group of vulnerable people and you know it's not cool to eat lunch in middle school nobody's having time for breakfast people are hiding their food People are starting to explore sexuality. This is such a beautiful population of people who need the holding, who need the yous out there listening, you know, to to be able to say, you know, instead of rewarding somebody at that age with food, what if we went hiking? What if we talked about food? What if we talked about food as their language of how they feel about their lives? If they're not eating, it's you're telling me that they're overwhelmed with their life. If they're hiding their food, they're hiding their need for love. They're hiding their need for nourishment. 
That's my opinion. I'm totally open to being wrong, but that's my experience. So often just ask the question. If you notice that your kiddo or your niece or your nephew is acting out in these ways, younger people, older people, instead of being like, you shouldn't do that, sugar's bad for you, or whatever, there's terrible languages that we sometimes use, all of us, including me, to say, what are you needing in that? What does it feel like when you put that brownie in your mouth? Mm-hmm. What is that need for you? And and greeting somebody with that grace. Yeah. That's the way I work. I love that. And and as you are talking about all of these things in, in middle school and that age range, and I'm reflecting on 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 that, you know, I was thinking what you're saying, 13 to 15, you know, I had overdosed on heroin by the time I was 15 years old, but at 13, 13, I was addicted to cocaine. And for me, what happened was I hit puberty incredibly, like really unnaturally early. And they even to the point where they, um, we were living in Boston at the time and they took me to a specialist and they were going to give me hormone shots to stop puberty because I was five years old. And, and they, my parents decided not to do that. So I hit puberty very, very young. And I think that is something that we're also seeing happening earlier and earlier. And interesting, I was reading when I got, you know, I, I got pregnant with the twins naturally and um, at uh, 29. And when I was reading about the instances of twins increasing, one of the things that I read was that there's so much estrogen in dairy. And I, you know, my parents used to joke that I was the dairy queen and used to tease me about how much dairy I had because I, you know, loved dairy. And, uh, and so, you know, they talked, there was a lot of talk about, you know, girls are hitting puberty so much younger as a result of ingesting more estrogen in the food. Interestingly, after the twins were born, I became violently allergic to dairy and I cannot even have a speck of dairy without vomiting which is not the normal. Usually it's like massive diarrhea and, uh, and I, I will vomit it before it ever gets to my intestinal tract. And so I'm like deathly allergic to dairy now, but I think you're seeing, you know, those of us get our period and you're seeing all these things. And so 13, I think even 13, by the time I was 13, it was, I was, it was gone. I wasn't listening and it started earlier and and i think you you'll see you know there's this isolation in that transition time i saw it with the girls who didn't hit puberty right they they felt out of out of but you're having these transition time you're transitioning before the boys right you're, the boys are not hitting puberty and so you're hitting puberty and so there is this this i always joke that people no one comes out of middle school normal no one comes out you know and and when you talk, when when I'm listening to you talk about, it, I'm like, oh, I like, I joke about that. No one, I was like, oh yeah, no one gets out of middle school normal. But interestingly enough, you're right. Like that's when we're gonna see the complete transition into typically, if there's gonna be this huge problem, and we treat it like something that's really normal. Yeah, and we don't offer any additional assistance to it. Like I, I don't think. I've never heard of someone saying, well, at 10 or at nine, we start to talk about this. Or we start to like, there's no offer that I've heard offerings about that period of time. And yet you're right. It is so pivotal transitional for all of us. And yet we, we don't talk about it. And the thing that just drives me nuts as a parent and that I'm doing a very imperfect job of 
you know, with my kids is that, you know, we are waiting until I can see in my kids. I, I know who's, <laughs> I can see what it is, right? Like I have a kid who's sugar is the end all be all and he's an empath. You know, we went to, we took him to Paw Patrol movie and there was a, a scene in the movie where, you know, one of the dogs comes from a hard life and it flashes back to it. And my kid sobbed. No one sobbed. Mm-hmm. No one in the theater gave two shits. Like the other kids, totally fine. I could not, I didn't know what was happening. My kid is in my lap sobbing. Mommy, mommy, can we leave? And I'm going, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, can we stay five more minutes? Because I want to, you to see that the end of this is happy. He's okay. Yeah. yeah, he's okay. And I didn't, you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm forcing him through the movie. But I really wanted to like feel the feeling all the way through so that there yes. we didn't end there. And so I, I, we did stay. I walked out of there and this has happened a couple of times. I've walked, I walked out of there going, oh, he's an empath. Yep. He's a, he's an empath. So he's an empath who loves sugar. And I'm totally ill-equipped as a recovering alcoholic, as a certified drug and alcohol counselor, as a, as a, you know, person who works in this field to know what to do to preempt. Now, if he gets, if he starts drinking, I'm qualified, right? Like I'm qualified to help. I'm qualified to find the people. But as a young kid, when you're talking about, we know we can see it in the brain, we can see the neurochemicals, we can do all this. I'm totally unqualified. And yet we don't talk about that. I disagree. I think you're incredibly qualified because you're an empath too. And so what would you have needed at the time? What would you have needed someone to say to you when you felt someone else's feelings? And I'm so blessed that my mom is a healer and an empath. Yeah. And so when I was little and I'd be crying in exact same situations like that, mine was Bambi. Holy macaroni. Oh God. That was was the worst Oh God! Oh my but, you God! Know, I, I, was, I think we're all as a as a as a as a PTSD. country is that was just yeah. beyond horrible. But when I would be in the grocery store, a good example, yeah. I would be in the grocery store and I would be start to cry or be upset, and my mom would look at me and say, "Sweetheart, is that yours? Do you feel that in your belly?" Or look around you and see if you can identify whose that is. And so I would be like, and I'd point, even if I was making it up, I don't think I really made it up, but I would yeah. point and she go, mm, okay, let's send her love and light. Let's send her love and light. And then she taught me how to use my boundaries, which fail consistently. I'm a very <laughs> active member of Al-Anon and my sponsor is just like, how can you be in this program 32 years and you're still a lunatic? I mean, I am. Shout out to Sarah. Um, but Seriously, but, you know, to, to be able to, you know, understand that the boundaries that we have in teaching kids like bubble up and even putting them in those big giant bubbles and having them roll around the backyard or whatever, and just being able to, and what my mom did with me is that she would throw me a feeling. And I know that sounds kooky, but I work with my empath kids a lot. What does that mean? So really just take a ball of anger bring up a feeling of fear and just energetically project that and uh, ask the kid to like, I mean, not big rage, obviously, but just, you know, (laughs) bring up a feeling and really ask these kids to be like, is that mommy's or is that yours? And sort of practice because, you know, to be a little woo woo, 
you know, that there's that there's a whole generation of these very, very intuitive kids coming yeah. through. And that first wave, they're all about 13, 14, 15, up until about 25. And what we're seeing is this huge boom of young adults. And so I'll send you a book by Doreen Virtue. Is there something called Indigo? That's just what I was saying. It's the Doreen Virtue's book is The Care and Feeding of Indigo Children. Indigo Children, right? Will you give us a little uh, blurb on Indigo? Children. So indigo children, and there's crystal children now coming in, and there's different kinds of groups. And I'm not an expert in this, so so forgive me. But there are some really really great scholars out there around this. But um, this first generation, we're seeing these children as this young adult population right now, booming in the world in beautiful ways, and also suffering and overdoses and whatnot. But is that they came in very sensitive. And often had food sensitivities, which is a very classic thing for an empath to have food sensitivities and gut issues. Because remember, you have a belly brain. So the belly brain, you have as many neural pathways in your gastrointestinal tract as you have in your head. And you make your serotonin in your gut. You don't make it in your head. You make it in your gut from the food that you eat. Boom. There we go. And so, you know, again, body, mind, and spirit, none of these are separate. And so if you have an emotional experience as an empath and you feel an emotion, it will often register in the gastrointestinal tract. And conversely, if you're a highly sensitive person, Alanis Morissette has a really, really good podcast about that and a good video about highly sensitive people. But if you are a highly sensitive person, you're also emotionally, you're also going to be highly sensitive to to food, to additives, to dairy products, to gluten, to preservatives, etc. And so being able to see that these go hand in hand, um, that a lot of these kids were identified with food allergies at five, six years old. A lot of people, a lot of these kids would have experiences like your son of just spontaneously crying because he saw suffering somewhere. They also have great knowledge of things that you're like, how did you know that? Do you, you know, like, how did you, and their dreams are often very intense. Their dreams are intense. That's good to know. Cause he's been telling me about dreams. Yeah. He, I, I used to say to my husband when he, before he could talk, I said, he just feels like he's looking into my soul. Like it's really. So the old soul, right? He's and not even talking. This was before he was in, there's just something Something absolutely, and your other beautiful producer who had her baby on earlier before we started the podcast. I looked right into that little person's eyes and I was like, Oh, hello, friend. Yeah, you know, this is not your first trip in my belief system. Yeah, yeah, uh, very old, old soul. So these children tend to need more of the holding mm. and need more of the you know, if they're, even if they're telling a big made up story, there's something being expressed there. Right. And with my daughter, she's such an indigo child. And for her, and the reason I'm a nutritionist is when she was three, we had a, uh, I got divorced and it was a big shattering and immediately her lungs filled with fluid. And so she was, she had pneumonia nine times in eight months. She was in and out of the hospital constantly on oxygen. And they wanted to put her on seven different medications, including um, one that was going to stunt her growth. And so we did 
amazing play therapy and EMDR with her. And at the same time, I took her off gluten and dairy. Boom, boom. Because the lungs hold grief. That's in Chinese medicine where you carry grief is in the lungs, which is interesting with COVID. Just a thought. So there's, you know, the 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 grief that was going on for her with the loss of her father. Right. She was and three. also there was a right. three. And also she was a little empath. And also she has a gluten and dairy sensitivity. All of those things aren't separated. We needed to do all of the things. Right. All of the things. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, people like the woo-woo. We talk about woo-woo or I talk about woo-woo stuff. And I always say, you know, all my doctors are integrative, right? Because I believe in using everything we can and doing all the things. I always say, what's the downside of trying this, right? What's the downside of trying meditation? There is no downside, right? Mm -mm. What's the downside of, so we look at, you know, when we're talking about addiction, we're talking about, you know, what's the downside of going to an AA meeting or an NA meeting or an Allen, right? Like what's the downside? It's an hour, right? You might meet some people. They might be super weird. You might be uncomfortable and leave. Like what is the downside? What's the downside of not going to a meeting? right? What's the risk? And so when we look at all those things, there's so many holistic options where it's like the downside of eating this is it doesn't taste good. And the upside is that it might really help, right? So look at that, right? What's the downside, the upside of taking this medication? And and when you look at all those things, you can even add like for me where I want a formula for how to get well, right? Like I want you to tell me like, do this 10 times, three Hail Marys, you know, whatever, drink this and then you're good. And so the formula that I like to use is like, okay, what's the downside of me not doing this or doing this? And so often the downside of me not exercising and the upside of me exercising or the downside of me not going to a meeting and the ups, they're pretty significantly different. And yeah. In my head, in my, you know, like, you know, I have this tiny actuary in there just, you know, penciling it out, right? And uh, in my head, that allows me to feel like there's some sense and meaning and that I'm, uh, and that I can actually think it through. Because one of the things that's so difficult about recovery for a person like me, you know, an empath who was taught to be dissociative and to be male energy and to be, a and not and and just shut down the feelings you know a thousand percent to be in the world and so the downside for me is that it feels like a waste of time or woo woo or you can't tell me exactly how it's going to work or or there's no like I can't intellectually understand it. And that's in order for me, my coping mechanism as an as an empath who shut it all down is I have to understand it. I have to intellectually understand it. And recovery is a bitch for people who have to intellectually understand things. It took me a long time because I was the 12 steps. I was like, this is ridiculous. Step three, I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. I literally looked at my sponsor, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, like genuinely, what does that mean? And do I turn something? Like I, I told her, I said, I want to turn something over, like literally a phone or an, an object or, and it, it, it just, recovery doesn't accommodate the person who wants to understand why or how it's going to work. And the science helps a little bit. That for me, that helps a little bit, right? The, the understanding like they're, they're made in the gut, serotonin, that, that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the things that you actually do to recover 
I've yet to meet a person that makes me feel really confident about the intellectual understanding of why this works. And I have been forced to do things and just trust that it's going to work out because I don't have a better option. And it's very uncomfortable. I think that's why, because I'm I'm somewhat a sciencey geek person who's also very spiritual. And I think that's why I needed something that was so tangible as food, because food is my love language anyway. And so I can do that and say, here's the scientific reason. And also, I'm going to ask you in this moment to trust me. I'm going to ask you to do this impossible thing. And then you have your experience. You know, I'm giving you the reasons, you know, and so many of my kids are like, yeah, I heard what you said. I'm still going to eat the ramen and the totinos. And I'm like, <laughs> good Anya, good, right. beautiful. I love you so much. And I'm going to tease you, but I am going to say that this along with the spiritual life, this along with the mysterious, this along with sitting in your 5,472nd AA meeting, you know, all of these things together, meditation, exercise, and whatever, this is a really amazing patchwork quilt that you get to build and you meet beautiful people along the way who are going to go, oh, here's a piece about nutrition. Here's a piece about meditation. Here's a piece about your higher power. Here's a piece about whatever it may be. And to be able to put that together. And I like that I'm doing this thing that makes me feel super duper passionate. And I still can be an empath, even though I look like a nutritionist. <laughs> um, so um, <laughs> if I can, I, I want to talk briefly about what, how I'm trying to get that out into the world, um, please with a, with a cookbook that I'm doing with a friend yes. of yours. And so we, it's uh it's nutrition for recovery cookbook. And we're actually going around the country interviewing and taking photo sessions of people who are in recovery and what was their relationship like with food in their use time. And then how is it now? And I do a one-on-one -on -one nutrition session and cooking class with them. And then we're going to be compiling phenomenal recipes and putting that out to the world to say, you know, especially like you were saying that three-year mark, mm -hmm. this might not be the Christmas present for the person who got sober in October, you know, <laughs> uh, it'll stay on their shelves. <laughs> exactly. Or it'll be, you know, a good way to prop up the laptop like I have exactly. right now underneath me. But, um, you know, but, but this, this is a great way for those people who are like, okay, now after three years of dealing with some of my trauma, dealing with detox, dealing with whatever that now I'm ready. And so I'm pretty stoked to be able to bring that out to the world. That's awesome. When does that come out? I don't know. Um, we, as soon as we can, our 2022 and intention is 2022 before the holiday season, but that that's kind of what, what I'd like to, to see happen. And, you know, it's, it's really exciting because people are taking a lot of risk and sharing their personal story, just like people do on your podcast of saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about telling my story to potentially a very large population of people, but that courage to change, you know, and that, that courage to be able to say, this is who I am and this is how I've suffered. And this is my experience and how I needed my eating disorder. And weirdly, yes. I needed my daughter to be so sick um, for many reasons. That sounds awful, but my higher power had a plan to bring me to this work today. And I feel like that with parents who come to me and say, 
my, my child's an addict. I'm so scared. And I'm like, of course you're really scared. And their spiritual path is bringing them on this kooky, kooky ass journey. Um, <laughs> and you know, like it's scary yeah. as shit. It really is. Yeah. And then to, but to be able to say, look at the people who have healed like you, and you are doing a beautiful, beautiful thing for our community, Ashley. And I really appreciate you and Lion Rock so much. Thank you. Thank you. And and likewise, I appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, it wasn't talked about. Nutrition wasn't talked about when I got sober. It wasn't part of any, there was, there was just no conversation about it. There, frankly, even eating disorders were, you know, they were separated from. We don't deal with that. Yeah. 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 We don't deal with literally, literally that was, that was told to friends of mine in treatment. We don't deal with that here. So you need to stop doing that. Um, okay. I'll, I'll oh, go really, ahead and that. Do was, that. Yeah. that was a no, full conversation. It was wild. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that this is a really important piece. And I also, one thing that we do on the, this podcast is we talk about all different types of stories, not just alcohol and drug recovery. And I find that after doing this for, you know, interviewing this many people and doing this for long, the recipe is very similar for everyone. The the recovery recipe, regardless of what you go through, like the nutrition, the exercise, the connection, the community, the spirituality, that's kind of the recipe for any recovery for what, from what I see, I, I, I didn't expect, I didn't really think that through before we started interviewing all these people. But at the end of the day, whether it's sex trafficking or it's alcoholism or eating disorder or adult children of alcoholic. I mean, really, that is the recipe. And I hear it in all sorts of different cool ways. But when you distill it down, it's about exercise, nutrition, getting into nature, community, some sort of connection with a like-minded community, with a like-minded group of people. And, and it, that is pervasive. I don't know if you've, and I'm sure you know her, the holistic psychologist. I think it's Nicole. Yeah, love it. Yeah. And I was reading her book and it was so funny. I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Nothing new, but really well put, really concisely put. And exactly what you're saying, that it can't just be done through one modality, because like you said, you can't just treat alcohol and be like, I'm in recovery because, you know, it's a spiritual and physical disease. <laughs> and there's you know, we have to look at all the the parts. And what I love is that I'm seeing more folks, you know, when I first got into the nutrition game, I had been a psychotherapist at many treatment centers and predominantly the Meadows. And I had a private practice, yada, yada, yada. And I saw dietitians who didn't understand addiction, Mm -hmm. who were working in treatment centers going, well, just stop, you know, just, you know, eat the thing. Don't eat the thing. And then I saw... Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, like listen, lady, if I could follow a meal plan, butt. right? <laughs> yeah. this is a $300 an hour meal plan. Like I got to tell you, that's not the issue here. <laughs> not at all. And I saw beautiful, wonderful therapists who understood addiction stepping into nutrition and, you know, and so it's, it's exciting that there's more people. There's actually a degree in nutrition psychotherapy now, which is like, so cool. I, I know 17 years ago when I was doing this, making this crap up myself, I was like, oh my gosh. And then Leslie Korn, if anybody's a geek like me, this is the most incredible book 
Leslie Korn with a K and it's nutrition essentials for mental health. And so she also has trainings and teachings and I didn't have to get two masters and study this for 17 years. I just needed to read this stupid book and it's brilliant. I just love it. Good to know. I'll avoid the school. Just read the book and then get out your shingle. There you go. Um, But honestly, she's so incredibly inspiring and brilliant. And one of the things that I love is that she spends half of her years, half her year in Mexico in the jungles, learning about indigenous healing practices. And then the second half of the year, she's at Harvard Medical School and trying to bring those together. So really seeing this beautiful marriage that's happening and understanding that these are not separate, that what you eat, how you feel physically. And also if you have something like lupus or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or if you have IBS, which in my opinion means I'm bullshitting you because IBS is not a disease. It's a symptom and it's real. I'm not saying that the the patient is bullshitting me. It's just like, you can't just say, oh, this is your disorder. It's like, this is a symptom of a system that is out of balance, right? And so understanding if you have IBS or if you've taken antibiotics, you're going to be an anxious noodle. And if you're anxious, you're going to use or want to use. So yeah, we didn't even talk about antibiotic use. Oh, oh probiotics, I'll, I'll, people. I'll probiotics. say this. That, so I went to um, David Wiss. I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, yes. I, I met with David Wiss and uh, some years ago, and and uh, we sat down. And yeah, you know, here's what's going on. He's a he's a um, he's a uh, nutrition dietitian, and uh, who has a lot of uh, knowledge in he's this amazing. area. Yeah, yeah, and he so he. The first question I've been to many a nutritionist, the first question he asked me, how many times in your life have you had antibiotics? And I looked at him and I was like, what? What kind of question is that? He said, but how many times? And I was like, there's literally no way for me to know that information. Like I couldn't even give you a ballpark. It would be completely made up. And the fact that he wanted to know how many times, I said, do people know that answer? Do people know how many times? He said, yeah. Yeah, they do. They do because this it's not supposed to be that many times. So he said the people I see who are struggling with the amount of gut dysregulation and the weight gain and the things that you describe with what you're eating, they've had an, a shit ton of antibiotics in their life. I had no idea that you, that you could ask people how many times they've had antibiotics and they might say three, yeah. they might say five. I mean, that was just, that blew my mind. And it was not until I sat down with David and that was the first question he asked me that I started to like really understand how dysregulating this stuff can be and how much that contributes. It's the gut microbiome to me is the most exciting thing that's happened in medicine and psychology in the last 10, 20 years. And I'm not underestimating that. Like it is so maybe not all of medicine, but certainly in psychology, because, you know, we understand that one of the main causes of anxiety is gut dysregulation, exactly what he was saying. And so if our gut is messed up, just like I was saying about the belly brain and the head brain, these are talking all the time. And so if your gut is all whacked out because you've killed the good bacteria and the bad bacteria, and then the yeast comes in and goes, hey, I found a empty vacant room. It's called (laughs) Ashley. And you know, I'm going to hang out in here and I'm going to be cause a lot of anxiety and bloating. Yeast is amazing component of bloating. And then we feel triggered if we have an eating disorder, if we're bloated. I mean, the cascade of that is incredible. So 
finding integrative practitioners like him, you know, he's just fantastic. Or reading things um, by David Perlmutter, uh, Mark Hyman. You've got absolute incredible, you know, Leslie Korn, of course. Um, and There's you've a got- great book called The Good Gut. I don't know if you, by a couple of Stanford professors that's that I it was really helpful in me understanding like the beginnings of what we're talking about in terms of the the what's happening and why the microbiome matters absolutely and I think and there's um uh Mark David the psychology of eating oh brilliant stuff there too so it isn't an either or I'm certainly not coming on and saying nutrition is going to keep you sober what I'm saying is that you know, not attending to nutrition makes sobriety harder. And to be able to know that we have our practices of, you know, if that looks like 12 step, if that looks like Dharma recovery, if that looks like, you know, whatever your path is, I support you completely. And, you know, there's as many ways to get sober as there are to heal physically. And so whatever people are looking at, but you are taking in your medicine three to five times a day. You're taking in your medicine three to five times a day and be aware of how you're talking about that medicine. Beware of how, if you're saying, I shouldn't eat this, this is bad for me. My body goes, okay, it's bad for me. You know, what if we say, oh, I'm going to have this and I'm going to be like, this brings me joy. I don't mean to Marie Kondo you, but I'm just saying like, (laughs) but like, you know, what is it that you, you know, what is it that you're eating and it, part of medicine is also joy. And so how do we have our joy, have our medicine, have our freedom? And the the most, the biggest theme when people talk to me in terms of the emotional content and the psychological content of what I do, it's always the word freedom, freedom. I want you to have freedom around your food and around your body. And then on the scientific end of it, if somebody says, what's your modality? Anti-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory. So if we can find freedom and anti-inflammatory, if we can find some sort of (laughs) cool initial about that, that'll be my, uh, my mantra. Oh my gosh. I love that. Well, I so appreciate your time and your wisdom is unending and what you're doing is just so important. And I, I hope that um, I'm really excited for the cookbook that you and Vanessa are putting all this time and energy into. I think it's going to be fantastic. And we will definitely put links to it on our, our Instagram and, and make sure that the world has access to that. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you so much, Ashley. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting's schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.